0: is not being televised but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village
1: on 90.7 FM KPFK I'm Rick Allen and I'm Brittany Gallagher. On this week's episode of Digital Village, Dr. Addison Colleen Stark is back to talk about science literacy in Congress and what happened to the Office of Technology Assessment. In the last part of the show, Leilani Albano is joined by the Union of Concerned Scientist, Shana Udvarde, to talk about FEMA and unemployment benefits. But first, COVID-19's impacts have been far-reaching, especially for government. I'm joined by the Los Angeles Department of Transportation's Colin Sweeney and CityGrow's CEO and co-founder Catherine Generakis to talk about how CityGrow's technology has helped LADOT and other governments adapt quickly during COVID times. Colin, how has COVID-19 impacted LADOT?
2: In many ways, we had to respond and change our operations a lot. A good example of of how we had to shift gears was with our traffic officers rather than managing clogged intersections at rush hour, they shifted to staffing food pickup zones and COVID testing sites. We also had to find new ways to use our streets for folks who weren't able to really travel around and congregate in areas where we're used to congregating in Los Angeles, such as the beach and parks, which were initially closed. So we introduced a slow streets program that allowed families to recreate in their own neighborhoods. And these were targeted towards areas that did not have a lot of park space or open space immediately available to them. Additionally, we had to look at our dash services, which were made free for all in Los Angeles, and introduce backdoor boarding so we could institute social distancing on our transit system.
1: With regards to technology and, and what you do, what's your normal tech planning timeline? And how did COVID throw a wrench in that?
2: Normally, when we introduce a new service or a product online, it is fully formed when we introduce it to the public. With COVID, we did not have the luxury of time. When introducing a new program, such as our Slow Streets or our LA Fresco outdoor dining program, these were communities that were hurting and businesses that were suffering. And there was an immediate need to get this service out there. And oftentimes a startup is looking for what is called the minimum viable product. Government often doesn't work in the same way. But in this case, for example, LA Fresco. We had to introduce a product to the public, and it was introduced in its simplest form of dining on sidewalks and in private parking lots. Since then, we have expanded that to a more complex model of where we are actually dining in the street with shutting down parking lanes and travel lanes. So it was a much faster implementation timeline than we would normally have done.
1: Catherine, have you been seeing a shift in this as well with other governments you're working with?
3: We're seeing this launch fast and iterate program perspective uh, across multiple governments right now. And Colin's right. In general, government is not one to put things up and running quickly. But during COVID, we've seen governments across the country around sidewalk dining, around COVID relief programs, be able to pivot not just their program planning, but in some cases, even their ordinances to change on a dime. And we're really proud that we have software that helps them do that because there's two reasons that government doesn't do that. One, they understandably want to be thoughtful and deliberate and consult with communities when they're planning new programs, but they often don't have technology tools that can change quickly. They are often using older tech that can't always respond in real time. And it's why we were incredibly happy to be able to work with LADOT on the Alfresco program, because our whole city wants our restaurants to survive and succeed. And to be able to support that was really
1: amazing. Colin, could you talk about how LADOT used City Grows for its LA El Fresco program?
2: What was complicated about Alfresco is it's not, uh, while LADOT administers the program, we are not the only department involved in the program. There is a rather complex workflow to get all of the approvals and check all the boxes and make sure that wherever these outdoor dining spaces are set up, that they're safe, that they're preserving public access in the public right of way. There was an existing city contract with CityGrow's, which allowed us to move forward quickly with them and bring them on board and use their technology to set this up because they had the tools available and it really hadn't been done before.
3: The reason we have that contract is because we price our technology to be below the limits that are required to issue an RFP So many governments are hamstrung by not being able to quickly procure technology because traditionally it's been very expensive. So we built Grows from the beginning to be a low-cost tool for government. It's actually a different department that had started using Citigrows, although we had done some work with LADOT previously. But it was amazing because we were there as a resource for the city to use and something that really did need interdepartmental review and routing And quick turnaround. I think the other thing that we're seeing is we're providing tools that allow governments to be a little creative in how they are issuing permits in this time. So, for example, the city of Los Angeles set up the initial sidewalk dining permit so that if a restaurant owner agreed to all the program conditions, provided all the appropriate information, our system was able to run some checks to make sure that all the information had been entered correctly and that the restaurant owner had signed off on all the commitments that were required for the program. And if they did that, the department just decided that the system could issue the permit by default, which means that restaurant owners were able to obtain these simple sidewalk dining permits in less than 20 minutes, which, especially on the day that Governor Newsom closed indoor dining. As you can imagine, we had this huge surge in applications because restaurant owners wanted to stay open. They needed a way to do that. We were so proud that that was an automatically issued permit, which is really different from how most governments have operated previously. So whether it's our partners at LADOT or doing similar work with West Hollywood and Santa Monica, governments across the country, they're making these same decisions to prioritize the application speed and efficiency and support for the public in this really difficult time. And a good byproduct is that it's making it easier for the folks who are managing the permits on the government side, too. Our, our goal is always to make their life easier.
1: Colin, how you think COVID and everything has, is going to permanently change how LA DOT
2: works? So in the short term, Certainly, our efforts have been geared towards harm reduction, making sure that we're not increasing the burdens on people who are already feeling a lot, whether that's suspending our parking enforcement for street sweeping, for example, so folks can actually stay at home without worrying about moving their cars, as well as a financial assistance program for folks with outstanding citations and making our transit services free. In the long term, that is an interesting question and something that we will have to tackle, ultimately. As p- how people use the street transitions, we're seeing less people possibly commuting in the future. What, what are the implications of that? And what does that mean for how we use our streets? We're at pretty much the 100-year mark since when the car took monopoly of the roadway. Before that, the road was the public square. People walked, there was commerce there, there was A variety of activities. Certainly the car isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but what we're seeing with programs like Alfresco, like Slow Streets, which have proven to be very popular, and with some of our uh, elected leaders and communities saying they would like to see these become permanent. These are all things that we have an opportunity to look at to improve overall quality of life once this major threat recedes. And there's potentially an opportunity here, whereas the street became a place that was exclusive to cars and people were shunted onto the side of the roads on small sidewalks, now there's potentially more options that have become available. Programs like Slow Streets or LA Fresco that change or adapt the use of the street as we commonly understand it, these are actually similar or logical extensions of programs that we've been piloting in Los Angeles for a time now, but that the onset of COVID-19 really underlined the need for. For example, we've had this program of Play Streets and people Street, where we would set up a playground in the street of an area that might not have as much park access. These were temporary programs, but ones that were embraced by communities and are examples of how we're trying to deliver a service that is being asked for, as opposed to a service that we believe is needed somewhere. These are things that are community-driven, community-requested, community-sponsored, so that we are actually being responsive with a ground-up strategy, as opposed to implementing something from City Hall or elsewhere.
1: Catherine, what do you think some of the impacts of COVID-19 are for government technology in the medium and long term?
2: One of the th-
3: impacts of COVID for government technology in the medium to long term, is it's going to be part of the transition away from the older systems. They're just not able to keep up with change. And it's really time for government to take the leap. And this is true at every level, state, federal, local. That's part of why we're really excited to be doing what we're doing now to allow governments to be able to start using technology instantly. Like we've had governments that started building something on CityGrows and launched it the next day. It's really important in the world we live in now. This crisis may be part of what finally moves government into a contemporary technology stack. One of the things that we do at CityGrows is that we make it really easy for governments to copy and then customize the work of our government clients. For example, some of the other governments in the region based their outdoor dining permits on what the city of Los Angeles launched. All of our COVID-specific workflows are free to any local government that wants to use them. So if there's a government who's listening to this broadcast who needs some help, please check out City Grow's. We want to make our technology available to governments who need it to respond to this crisis, and we are excited to be working with governments all over the country to do it.
1: That was Colin Sweeney of LADOT and Catherine Generakis of City Groves. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on Fearless Radio here on 90.7 FM, KPFK, Los Angeles.
0: Digital Village has been bringing you the cyber news stories and in-depth interviews you won't hear anywhere else to help you navigate the latest in digital technology.
1: Including the information needed to help you guarantee fair voting, keep the internet neutral, and protect yourself online. Please take the important step of giving a gift to help KPFK continue to bring you not only information, news, and culture, but also the sense of joy, relief, and community you've come to expect from us. You can donate right now to keep this glorious independent listener-sponsored radio flourishing
0: by going to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks Thanks again. again.
1: We've talked a lot on this show about the lack of tech expertise in Congress, particularly around understanding Facebook and Google's business models, or even understanding what Facebook is. But Congress actually needs to understand a lot more than just big tech companies. There's climate change, and there's so much more. So Dr. Addison Colleen-Stark is back to help us break this down and maybe give us some hope for the future.
4: Brittany, you point out correctly that the recent hearings on big tech have really given a showcase to Congress's inability to comprehend deep technical challenges. And that is not just in what we think of as modern tech, information technology, and the modern technological age, but it's also their ability to deal with larger systemic technical and scientific policymaking that it's a big challenge in addressing climate change, because as we've talked about previously, there's a lot of innovation that needs to be done, new technologies that need to be developed, and new programs to scale up and demonstrate these technologies. But fundamentally, there's a lack of technical expertise on the Hill to be able to effectively grapple with these challenges. Let me give you an example. I was up on the hill and I was sitting with a couple of staffers who were working on writing a climate bill. And I was up there helping them walk through a better understanding of the electric grid and how power generation works. And while I was explaining this, one of them asked a question. I thought, oh, they're probably going to ask about how the transformers work. And they asked a much more fundamental but discouraging question, what is voltage? So they were asking a question that is something all of us learn in high school physics, and maybe a lot of us forget about during college if we didn't take a STEM major, but they had not enough technical understanding about the topic they were trying to write laws on. And I think this is a challenge that is pervasive across Congress. There's information about this. Last year here at BPC, we wrote a report on that topic. We were focused on looking at an old office that used to exist in Congress that gave technical advice to Congress and staffers, the Office of Technology Assessment. This was developed in the mid-century and it lasted from the 70s through the 90s and helped to bring scientists, engineers, and other technology experts to Congress to serve as an internal think tank on technical challenges. The office wrote reports on everything from genetic engineering to climate change, space and satellite communications. When the OTA existed, it had bipartisan support and was run in a bipartisan manner with a committee that oversaw it that had equal representative of Democrats and Republicans.
1: So, Addison, what happened?
4: Unfortunately, This office was cut in the early 90s underneath Speaker Gingrich's focus on cutting costs in government. We lost the capability to actually have reasoned technical policy debates in Congress.
1: Are there efforts to bring it back?
4: We've been part of advocacy across the political lines. So there are organizations on the left and organizations on the right that are really focusing on this critical issue because many organizations, NGOs like ourselves, recognize that there's not enough technical competency right now on the Hill. Developing further expertise and bringing people back to Congress that have technical backgrounds will be helpful for us to address these challenges.
1: What is the current status of the OTA?
4: Today, the status of the Office of Technology Assessment is starting to improve. The important thing is the OTA still exists in authorization in law. All it requires is an appropriation to come from the House and the Senate in order to reinstate and rebuild this office. And actually, there was some movement towards that. In the last fiscal year, the House passed a bill to fund it at a limited amount to start to rebuild. it. The Senate did not approve that yet. However, in their appropriation bill, had put in language of the requirement to start a study to reconsider the Office of Technology Assessment, which means they want to take time to decide whether or not it needs to be reinstated or if the function can be served through another governmental office.
1: This dovetails into the Governmental Services Administration. Could you talk about what that is?
4: The GSA has recently started to serve in a technology advisory capacity. They've developed a sub-office that has been advising executive and congressional offices on technology. And that could be expanded to offer these types of services. If I were divining the tea leaves, I'd say that the Senate is interested in looking at what is the best model, restarting a new office, since there's no one working there, or expanding and investing in this office at the GSA. There's some slight differences. The GSA is an executive branch office, whereas the OTA was a congressional branch office so there would be some question about to whom they are most beholden. However, that could just be a functional question that really doesn't matter as long as we start to get technology advice and scientific advice back to members of Congress. If Congress is to legislate and to develop policy on science and technology issues the way we need to, there are a lot of technical challenges and scientific challenges in front of us, from big tech to climate change, to Chinese interference and hacking. These things require policy expertise and technical expertise. Reviving either the Office of Technology Assessment or expanding the GSA's role in supporting Congress and making policy on technical issues is of critical importance.
1: Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on Fearless Radio here on 90.7 FM, KPFK, Los Angeles.
0: Last month, President Trump signed an executive order to restore unemployment benefits, circumventing a congressional stalemate. This order purports to restore $400 a week to those who lost their jobs due to COVID-19. Activists condemn the order, stating that it cuts FEMA funds almost one-third and overburdens communities throughout the country that are already battling extreme heat waves, massive fires, and intensifying hurricanes. With us to talk about the issue is Shauna Utvarde, climate analyst with the Union of Concerned Scientists. She spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano.
5: In early August, President Trump signed an executive order to bypass the congressional stalemate on unemployment benefits, restoring $400 in weekly assistance. Is
6: it good policy? In fact, this executive order represents bad policy, and the reason is is that it will overburden FEMA and states alike. Putting communities even greater risk. And the reason is that it's overstepping the constitutional guardrails by taking over Congress's power of the purse. The Constitution actually vests Congress with this authority. Congress must pass a bill to appropriate funds before public funds are spent. So even when a president would like to
5: appropriate funding, it's constitutionally prohibited. Trump's executive order, a raid on disaster relief funds. Can you tell us about that?
6: FEMA's Disaster Relief Program is set up in particularly for the times that we're seeing now with extreme wildfires and hurricanes to actually provide funding assistance to states for disaster recovery and disaster assistance. But what the executive order does, it actually raids FEMA's disaster relief funds, using these funds for unemployment that is meant for disasters and instead is using it to pay for unemployment claims due to lost wages from COVID.
5: How much of a cut that will take from FEMA?
6: It allows FEMA to take up to $44 billion out of the fund, so this is roughly one-third cut to the disaster relief fund. By the end of the fiscal year, there will be roughly $14 billion left in the disaster relief
5: fund, so it will be on Congress to appropriate more funds in this coming year. Extreme weather and climate change have become a growing part of the national conversation. How unprecedented are these extreme heat events, and what factors are at play?
6: It is unprecedented, and we're seeing the impacts of climate change much sooner than many people had thought. The United Nations released a recent report telling us what many scientists already know is that the world is not on track to meet its targets to keep global temperatures well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Instead, we're on the path of a 4 degrees Celsius or 7 degrees Fahrenheit increase in global temperatures by the end of the century. This will mean
5: enormous ecological, economic, and geopolitical shifts if we remain on this path. And we're already seeing it now. For example, Woodland Hills, which is an area in Los Angeles, had set a record temperature of 121 degrees. What can we see in the near future? We will continue to see extreme heat
6: it's going to affect all places in the United States and territories. Extreme heat is measured according to the heat index, and that's a combination of temperature and humidity. So that helps create the feels like temperature. The Union of Concerned Scientists report used the heat index to help understand what we're going to see if we fail to reduce heat-trapping emissions. And what we found is that we'll see a staggering expansion of dangerous heat across the United States if we do not take aggressive action. For example, by mid-century, we found that the number of days with a heat index above 105 degrees Fahrenheit, and this would be particularly dangerous for people who work outdoors or are elderly, the number of days the heat index above 105 degrees Fahrenheit would quadruple by mid-century. So this means that more than 150 cities across the country would experience an average of 30 or more days per year with a heat index above 105 degrees.
5: Fires are raging all throughout California. How does climate change play into that? Climate change is increasing a lot of the climate
6: conditions that lead to increased wildfire risk, like warmer temperatures, drier soils, and drier vegetation. The fuels will burn more readily. And so climate change means we'll see an increase in the area burned, an increase in the number of large wildfires, and an increase in the length of wildfire season. The bottom line is that climate change is a threat multiplier when it comes to wildfires.
5: People can more or less see the link between climate change and fires and extreme heat, but rarely do they associate climate change with hurricanes. What's the connection?
6: So climate change amplifies hurricanes in three main ways. First, warmer water provides more fuel for the hurricanes and causes more hurricanes to strengthen into higher Category 4 and Category 5 storms. So this is what we saw with Hurricane Laura. That was considered to be a Category 4 storm. with a maximum sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. But also warmer air can hold more water. Take Hurricane Harvey, for example, where there were off-the-chart record rainfall of 60 inches in 2017. And climate scientists found that this storm was 15% more intense and three times more is likely because of human-induced warming. And finally, we see that sea level rise is a consequence, as we know, of global warming, it makes storm surge even more intense and extensive. And again, with Hurricane Laura, we saw a really record-breaking and groundbreaking storm surge for that area of about 15 to 20 feet along the coast of Louisiana.
5: This is an especially trying time for low-income communities and communities of color. How will Trump's executive order further exacerbate their problems? Historically,
6: disadvantaged communities and communities of color have borne the brunt of these disasters. And unfortunately, the truth is that most of the disaster assistance isn't targeted towards these people who need it the most. And so this executive order will take away from the Disaster relief Fund, and that means less money for the folks in need, particularly communities of color who have been hit so hard from COVID and are bearing the brunt as well on the West Coast of the toxic air due to these wildfires.
5: Without adequate funding, What will happen to these communities during a disaster in terms of efforts to evacuate? It's extremely trying times for people who are low-income,
6: elderly, and who may be suffering from COVID. When it comes to evacuation, it is easier for folks who have means and have funds to evacuate. Some folks do not have cars to evacuate and they may not have the funding to stay at hotels. So these are really trying times. And this is why we really need a comprehensive effort by Congress and the executive branch to deal with all of these issues, climate change, COVID and disaster assistance in
5: concert. There are several ways the executive order could end. What approach should legislators be taking to address this issue? Congress and the executive branch really need to
6: walk and chew gum at the same time. So what we need to do is have Congress act and pass a COVID relief bill so that we can get these badly needed funds to
5: communities of need. But what is the likeliness that they will actually pass an un- unemployment insurance legislation under Trump? The outlook is not good. The Democrats
6: and the GOP have been at stalemates on how to solve this COVID release problem. And we're seeing the end of the fiscal year, the end of this September, and we have the election coming up. So I don't see a positive outlook when it comes to a new COVID release bill.
0: That was Shauna Udvardi, climate analyst with the Union of Concerned Scientists. She spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano.
1: That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In Quantum World. You can hear all our episodes by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org, click audio archives and search. For digital village you can also follow us on all things social using at digital v radio or at digitalvillage.org a special thank you to dr addison colleen stark and leilani albano digital village and kpfk relies on you our listeners you can pledge your support for kpfk online at kpfk.org forward slash pledge
0: thanks for listening to digital village i'm rick
1: allen and i'm Brittany gallagher
0: And we'll see see you you online.